Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. I trust that your time in the Word has been profitable and that as you've spent time in the Word, you've been able to put those incredible truths into practice. It is, of course, the goal of the Christian to discipline him or herself for godliness, and that happens slowly over time, day after day. And so I would encourage you, be in the Word, be in prayer, be thinking and talking about spiritual truths and spiritual principles so that you can better serve your Savior. I want to turn our attention today to something that's been very, very disappointing to myself and to other Christians uh, in the state of Ohio, probably other Christians throughout the United States, Um, And I'm sure that there are even many non-Christians who are also disappointed about this particular turn of events, and that is why pro-lifers keep losing state and national elections. Why do pro-lifers keep losing on the issue of life? If you have been kind of tuned in at all to national politics, you would know that Ohio in November had an election, and one of the issues on the ballot was Issue 1. And Issue 1 made changes to the Ohio Constitution, which enshrined abortion as a fundamental right in the Ohio Constitution and provided access to abortions up to 22 or 23 weeks, and in some cases even longer if it is deemed necessary by the doctor. And one of the really... um, One of the really sad provisions of this bill is that it doesn't make any provision for parents to have a say over their minor children. And so parents um, of minors who maybe get pregnant um, unexpectedly, those minor children can seek abortion without consulting their parents. Um, And that's just a, it's just a very sad development in our society because we, we don't value age, we don't value wisdom, we don't value authority. And so the, the general tenor of, of the direction of our society is going towards whatever the individual deems to be right for him or herself. That's what is right, and no one can tell them otherwise. Issue one, when it passed, um, just was very devastating. I know a lot of people were heartbroken over it. Personally, my initial response was anger, and I was angry at a number of different people, even institutions. Um, I was angry at the other side because they are much better at marketing than our side is. Um, It doesn't seem like Ohio in general should support this. Ohio in the 2020 election has become not a swing state, but really a red state. Uh, They went for Trump in 2020 by eight points. And uh, full disclosure, in case you didn't know, I live in the state of Ohio, so I'm aware of what's happening here. Um, I was very hurt by this particular loss because it said a lot to me about 
the the it said a lot to me about where people are really at in terms of their spiritual worldview and the practice of their spiritual worldview. And so after thinking about this situation and reading different articles and examining it, I, I've come up with, in my opinion, three reasons why pro-lifers keep losing. And, and we've not just lost in Ohio, we've lost in Michigan, we've lost in Missouri, we've lost in Kansas, uh, we've lost in a lot of places that you would traditionally think of as red states or more conservative states. But why do we keep losing on the life issue? All right, so let me go ahead and give you reason number one. I think the number one reason that pro-lifers lose on the life issue is that we place too much faith in the Republican Party. We place entirely too much faith in the Republican Party. Now, I will grant that the Republican Party in their national platform has some platitudes in it about treasuring life, protecting life, wanting to defend life. But the fact of the matter is the National Republican Party and I think the statewide Republican Party members of the individual states, they really look at those things as platitudes. We just need to say this. This needs to be on our platform so that we get the votes because the other side, the Democrats, the left, they're absolutely godless, and they, they want to celebrate death at every turn. And so in order to make some kind of distinction, we're going to say we celebrate life. We want to promote life. We want to encourage life. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at the specific statements made by prominent national Republicans or state-level Republicans, um, they don't really care about the life issue. And so the Republican Party, because they don't care about the life issue, they don't campaign for the life issue, they don't make uh, the life issue a red line of, like, we will not compromise on this at all. Um, within the last six weeks, I've heard uh, former President Donald J. Trump say recently that a 15-week abortion ban that is uh, implemented on a national level would be perfect and appropriate for our country. Uh, Nikki Haley, in the most recent presidential debate, a 2024 presidential candidate, said the same thing, that we, you know, we, we just can't win on the life issue, so we just need to compromise at 15 weeks, and uh, that's that. So, you know, 15 weeks is well into the second trimester of life. Let me give you some perspective on this. 15 weeks, okay? 15 weeks. In Europe, okay, which... Many Americans think that Europe is far more progressive than America. Many Americans think that Europe is farther down a spiritual decline than America is. In Europe, there are only three countries that have a more lenient time standard than what has been proposed by the leading Republican national presidential candidates. Okay, Remember, these, Donald J. Trump, Nikki Haley, happy with 15 weeks. In Europe, only three countries allow abortions longer than that. One of them is the United Kingdom, and they are at 24 weeks. One of them is the Netherlands. They're at 22 weeks. And one of them is at Sweden, and they are at 18 weeks. Those are the, the maximum limits for abortions in those countries. Now, all the other countries in Europe, okay, Spain, France, Germany, um, many, many other countries are limiting abortions to 12 weeks, 12 weeks. That's what you get, 
12 weeks. Portugal is even more conservative at 10 weeks. Poland is even more conservative, and then they have very stringent restrictions on who can get an abortion and when that can happen. Uh, Poland is the most conservative country in all of Europe. So, But it, when you think about like progressive European nations, you're thinking of France, you're thinking of Germany, you're thinking in some cases of Spain, Greece, these types of countries, and they're all limiting abortions to 12 weeks. And we want to have a ban nationally from the Republican Party. This is the proposal from the Republican Party that is 15 weeks long. Look, we're just not serious about protecting life. 15 weeks is a long time, a long time. All right, that's, that's a little over one-third of the way to completion, a little over one-third. So I just think that the Republican Party, they give lip service to the life issue, but they don't really care about the life issue. And because the, the Republican Party uh, just gives it lip service and doesn't care, they don't campaign hard against it. They don't come out in favor of um, strict bans on abortion. They don't come out in favor of, you know, hey, we are going to restrict abortion and we are going to try to protect life at every cost. I think that many on, in the Republican Party represent what has been called the godless right. The godless right. Of course, we believe the left is godless. Now, godless meaning they don't recognize Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Creator. They don't recognize Jesus as the Lord and Savior of mankind. Um, they have a God. Their God is Satan. Their God is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world. That is their God on the left. And I think there are many in the Republican Party who share the same God. They would be called the godless right in that they don't recognize Yahweh. They don't recognize Jesus as Savior. They may give lip service or platitudes to going to church, but by and large, they're godless. They are just a little bit further behind the Democratic Party and the godless left on the Romans 1, 18 through 32, progression into degeneracy and wickedness. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Romans 1, 18 starts out this way. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse." The godless right has rejected the God of the creation. The godless right has denied the truth about Yahweh. The godless right is exactly what Paul describes in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible, incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The godless right has exchanged the creator for some idol made in the image of creation. 
that's really where many people in the Republican Party are. Now, you may say, oh, they go to church, they go to mass, they do this, they do that. They seem to be religious. They talk about, you know, Christian values or whatever. You can talk about Christian values. You can attend church. That doesn't mean that you believe in the God of creation or that you want to actually put into practice the truths that he has proclaimed in his word. And why do I believe that many um, many on the right are godless? Well, they've fallen prey to the second part of what Paul writes in Romans 1, 18 through 32. God has given over those who reject him to sexual impurity, to promote sexual deviancy. And there are many in the Republican Party who would promote sexual deviancy and sexual relationships outside of the, the boundaries that God has established. And what are those boundaries? Those boundaries are marriage. One man, one woman, married for life, that is the appropriate place to express sexual desires and sexual fulfillment. But the, the godless right says, hey, just you know, do whatever you want, do whatever makes you feel good, um, don't worry about the consequences of that. Live your life. Live your life. All right, so the godless right has also accepted sexual deviancy. And not only have we accepted it in terms of uh, heterosexual sexual relationships, we've also accepted it in terms of homosexual relationships. There are many prominent Republicans who are totally down with the LGBTQ agenda. They're totally down with, hey, whatever two consenting adults decide to do in their bedroom, that's okay. That's okay. Let them do it. Just, just make sure that you vote Republican. And so we have really, in the Republican Party, divorced moral authority over our individual bodies from the principles that we want to see practiced in a national or state-level government. So in, in a state-level government or in a national government, the Republican Party says, oh, we want small government. We want limited government intrusion. We want freedom. We want to be able to exercise our rights. And those are all things that are well and good, but there are moral authorities that govern what freedoms you have and what rights you have. But the Republican Party has divorced itself from really the founding documents of this country and the, the historical association with the church, which pointed them towards a moral authority, that being the scriptures. And so because we've divorced ourselves from those things, I'm talking about the Republican Party, because and, and I'm saying we because, honestly, I vote for Republicans most often. I mean, there are occasionally times I vote for independents, but uh, no, I, I would identify, you know, with that particular party in their platform. So I'm saying we, all right? But we, all right, the Republican Party, they have left me behind. I'm not, I have no confidence in them anymore. This is a real problem. The Republican Party, because of the things I've just laid out, is not in the same place as many who are truly pro-life. Their worldview the Republican Party worldview is very different than many pro-lifers. Why? Because when it comes to moral authority, many in the Republican Party say, do what makes you feel good. 
you are your own moral authority. But we want to have limited government over here. We want to have less government spending over there. And, you know, we want to have this other framework. Um, that's a recipe for abject disaster. If you divorce government from any kind of moral authority, then you end up with the moral authority being either the will of the people, and you have wicked sinners deciding what the objective moral truths of the culture will be, or what's more likely is that you give yourself over to the God of this world, and the God of this world, Satan, he has things to say that are moral, um, they're, they're amoral or they're immoral according to God's word, they're wrong, they're wicked, but he will propose a, a sort of certain morality that people can abide by. And his morality is always subjective and always serves the interest of self rather than looking to the interests that God would have established in his creation. So many pro-lifers, we need to come to grips with the fact that the Republican Party does not represent our views the Republican Party is not going to save us. They are not going to help us on this issue. Now, it's possible the Republican Party could be reformed, but that requires everybody who is pro-life to really be diligent to vote for Republicans who are truly pro-life Republicans, not Republicans who give platitudes towards the pro-life position, not Republicans who would make a compromise on the pro-life position, but truly pro-life Republicans. All right, so I'm done teeing off on the Republican Party, but you get my point. I think when we look at the pro-life movement in and of itself, I think we have some issues to deal with in-house as well, all right? The first thing, and this is actually the second point, so we have two issues that we have to deal with as, as pro-lifers. The second point of why we lose is that we build arguments for the wrong battle. We build the wrong arguments for the wrong battle. And what I mean by this is that the other side, the godless left, they have a particular style of argumentation that they are using to convince people that abortion is a fundamental right, that it should be celebrated, that it is good, that it is righteous, they have a particular set of arguments that they are using to convince people of that truth. Now, the arguments that we make are not the same style or not the same kind of arguments that they make. What do I mean by that? Well, the other side, they are making emotional appeals to people. They are appealing to some kind of moral authority and, and basically, they are assigning the moral authority to the individual. What do you feel is best for you? See, that is an emotional appeal. That is an emotional argument. It's totally based on feelings. What feels good to you? What's right for you? Now, the other side, our side, pro-life side, we typically craft arguments against abortion from a factual perspective. So we are saying life begins somewhere. Life begins at conception. Life begins at six weeks. Life begins at whatever. Whatever we, whatever we say, I've heard a lot of different things. Obviously, I believe life begins at conception. But to be, to be fair, there are others who would say, well, it takes a little bit later, blah, 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 whatever. It doesn't matter. 
we are making factual arguments and we are trying to argue on a scientific basis. Why? Because the other side has told us for so long that if it's not science, it's not real. If it's not science, we can't believe it. If it's not science, then we don't have to listen to it. And so we interpreted their critiques as being like, well, we must be more scientific. We must be more factual. Notice that the other side doesn't use scientific arguments to prove their point. They use emotional appeals. They make rights-based appeals. They're like, hey, who is your moral authority? Where do your rights come from? What makes you feel good? That's a different style of argumentation than we use. We're like, hey, look at the ultrasound. You see that heartbeat there? You see this little hand right here? You see that face right there? That's got to be a baby. We win when the arguments are factual. And it's true that um, we seem to be winning a, a lot of younger people who are more technologically driven, who are very convinced by images of things that are true. And so when young people look at ultrasounds, they say, oh, that is a, that is a real person. We, we probably shouldn't kill that person, okay? But the other side wants to keep the argument away from these points. They don't want to get into a factual discussion because they know they'll lose. As long as they can keep it at the emotional level, they know that they will win. All right, so what we need to do, what we need to do is we need to appeal, we need to have or cultivate the same types of arguments that they make. So they appeal to a moral authority. We need to also appeal to the moral authority, to a moral authority. And this is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, so let me read this to you. This is a very fascinating passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He's talking about spiritual warfare and how you defeat the enemy, Satan. Okay, listen to what he says. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now notice, he says, we need to recognize that we are in a war, but it is not a war of the flesh. It is a war of ideas. It is a spiritual war. This is exactly our problem. When we point to ultrasounds, when we point to the scientific reality of life beginning at conceptions, those are the weapons of the flesh. We can see those. It's data. And you know what? They should be convincing. But Paul is saying, we're not fighting that kind of war. We are fighting a spiritual war. We need to understand that the, the war is spiritual in nature, and therefore our arguments must be spiritual in nature. So the pro-life side has to figure out how to shift the discussion um, that we make from one of factual arguments to one of moral authority. Who gives you the right to decide what to do with that child that is in your womb? Who gives you the right? Well, it's my body, my choice. Well, what about the other body? If you decided not to go through with the abortion, what would come out? A, a baby, a human baby. 
So at what point do you have, um, at what point do you lose the ability to choose whether that human lives or doesn't live? Is it at 12 weeks or is it at two years old? What if you have a really difficult toddler? Should you decide, I can't deal with this anymore. I should abort this child. Okay. And I, you know, we could sit here and come up with a whole host of other questions of that nature. But those are the types of moral arguments that we need to get to. We need to get people off of thinking about themselves um, and thinking that, well, my rights trump every other thing. My happiness, my purpose, my feelings, me, 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 that trumps everything else. And we need to open up their minds and say, well, what moral authority affirms this decision that you're making? How do you sleep at night knowing that you're about to potentially end a a living being? You could even come at it from a different perspective. How do you feel about animal shelters putting dogs to death or cats to death? Do you think that those lives are valuable? And, And if they say yes, you can say, well, what about the life that's inside of you? Is that life valuable? Is, is that life less valuable than a dog or more valuable than a dog? Okay, it, you know, I'm sure people will have all kinds of different answers for this, but these are the kinds of conversations that we need to get into. And I'm sure there are people out there who are much smarter than I am, who have reasoned through these things more than I do, because honestly, I'm, you know, as a pastor, this is not my main gig to think through the arguments that need to... Uh, be appealed to, but we need to have the right kinds of questions to get the argument into the spiritual realm, and then we can use the scriptures, which is a spiritual book, to attack those particular arguments. You know, what moral authority? Well, I haven't thought about the moral authority. Well, let me tell you, I have thought about the moral authority. There is a God who created everything, and he says that life is precious and that he is the one who forms the baby that's in your womb. Have you ever thought about the fact that God is forming that baby? Would you want to destroy something that God is forming? There's a quick way to take it from a, I'm going to do what I feel is right, to here is a moral authority that exists outside of yourself, and he has told you the preciousness and the value of the life that is inside you, and he has revealed to you that he has a part in that. All right, so now we're moving from just factual arguments to um, what I would consider to be uh, spiritual-level arguments. We're, we're, we're now fighting on the same battlefield. So we as pro-lifers need to make sure that we can win not just on the facts, but we can also win on the emotion and the appeal to the correct moral authority. Finally, the third reason why I believe pro-lifers continue to lose is that we haven't adequately answered the other side's most successful red herring argument, okay? We have not adequately answered the other side's most successful red herring argument. Now, what is a red herring fallacy? A red herring fallacy is when you are having a discussion with somebody 
and you're having a disagreement and you're trying to persuade them to your side, they basically say, hey, look over there at that red herring. What about that red herring? Okay, now a herring is a fish and they're not red. Okay, they're, they're typically silver or bluish in color. So a red herring would be something very unusual to see. A red herring fallacy is when you bring something into the argument that doesn't really actually pertain to the argument, but distracts everybody from the main point that you're trying to communicate. So the other side has a very successful red herring argument. And this is what it is. Well, how will you care for all these unwanted kids? How will you care for all these unwanted kids? I'm sure some of you listening have heard that particular line come out of the mouth of somebody who is pro-abortion. Well, we if we didn't have abortion, we'd have all these unwanted kids, and who would take care of them? Does this even address the issue? No, it totally sidesteps the moral authority argument, totally sidesteps the factual arguments of, you know, when does life begin, and should life be protected, and all of those kinds of questions. It totally sidesteps, and it says, well, if we didn't have abortion, then we'd have a whole bunch of unwanted kids running around. And it's based on a false assumption. The false assumption is this, that every aborted child is unwanted. That's not true, okay? Many people get abortions because they think it's just the next right step. They think it's cultural. They think, well, you know, if it seems like every woman is getting an abortion, and so I should also get an abortion too. It's a, it's a celebration of personal freedom and liberty to get an abortion. There are a number of reasons why people get an abortion beyond, I don't want this child. And we know that this is a red herring argument because there is a ministry out there called Preborn, and this ministry specializes in showing um, pregnant mothers an ultrasound of their children. Okay, and when the ministry of preborn, how they do it is they they take these mothers, many of whom are single, um, they're pregnant, they're expecting, they're considering abortion. They will show the mom an ultrasound of the baby, and in eighty percent of the cases, this is their own statistic. In eighty percent of the cases, the moms who see the baby on the ultrasound will choose to go through with the pregnancy rather than to have an abortion. What does that tell you? That tells you that the baby is not quote-unquote unwanted. It tells you that the majority of young, single, pregnant moms have been so totally convinced by our culture and by the teaching in our culture that the right thing to do is to have an abortion. It's culturally appropriate to have an abortion. It's in fact celebrated to have an abortion. And so if I'm pregnant and in I didn't really want to be, or I wasn't really expecting to be pregnant, then the right thing to do is to get an abortion. But when those moms see the baby, they change their mind, they go through with it, they have the child. So this is a red herring argument because the fact of the matter is those kids aren't unwanted. It's just that people have been so brainwashed, women in particular have been so brainwashed to believe that abortion is a good and moral choice for an unplanned pregnancy that, you know, we just go ahead with it without any question or any thought. So what can we do? What can we do to adequately answer this red herring argument? Well, one of, one of the things that we could do better is we could adopt and promote legislation to make adoption easier and less expensive. There are, there are just 
thousands and thousands of couples who would love to adopt a child, who would be willing to adopt a child, but the adoption process in the United States is very expensive and it's also very difficult. And so if the argument is, how will you care for these unwanted children? One of the ways to break that argument apart is by introducing legislation at the statewide level, maybe even at the federal level, that would make access to adoption easier, okay? I think the other thing that people try to do is they say, well, we need to care for these single moms. And I got to be honest with you, I don't really buy that argument. I think that there are a lot of government subsidy programs already in place that will care for single moms and provide for them and their children. Um, Could those be reformed? Absolutely. I'm not saying that they're perfect. They could absolutely be reformed. But the, 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 um, solution is not to just give more money to single moms. The solution is if the baby is truly unwanted, if, you know, in fact, the mom can't care for the baby, maybe she's uh, addicted to drugs, maybe um, she's in a really bad spot in life, and she, but she understands that it's life and she wants to give the baby up, we need to make adoption access so much easier. In conjunction with that, Okay, in conjunction with that, I would suggest that we also, as pro-lifers, need to promote a return to biblical first things. And this should be, uh, this is the responsibility of pastors, and so I'm going to speak to this as a pastor. There are a number of pastors who are quote-unquote mega-church pastors. They have influential platforms. They do not promote biblical first things. And what do I mean by that? A biblical first thing is that sex is an activity that is reserved for married couples and only with the person that you're married to. That is a biblical first thing. In fact, that's one of the first things that God established in creation. Genesis chapter 2, Adam looked around, did not find any helper suitable for him, and so God made a woman out of his rib and brought her to him, and he, he put them together in this thing called a one flesh union. And that is a special union that is not to be broken. And that is the appropriate place to express um, your sexual desires with one another. That's a return to a biblical first thing. So we need to promote marriage. And one of the ways we can do that is by making divorce more difficult. Okay. Divorce should not be easy. Divorce should be difficult. Secondly, Married couples should attempt to have their own children. They should try to have children. I'm so saddened by many millennials and Gen Zers who are missing out on the joys of parenthood because they're like, well, the earth is going to be overpopulated. Um, we're afraid of climate change. Um, we're, kids are too expensive. Um, we can't help ourselves. Um, and they have all these excuses for why they cannot be parents. But you know what? They should try to be parents. They should try to be parents. And if they can't be parents because they're barren or some other reason, you go back to the legislation to make adoption easier. Let them become parents by adopting a child that somebody was unable to care for. Finally, dads need to be responsible. Dads need to be present in the lives of their children. Dads need to enforce biblical first things for their family. You know, there should be consequences. If you're a dad, there should be consequences for your children should they 
violate God's principles when it comes to sex and sexuality. All right? We need to, again, getting back to biblical first things, we need to promote the idea that abstinence is a good thing. It is a sacred thing. Your body is a sacred thing. I mean, if we're talking about the preciousness of life in the womb, don't you think that, you know, an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 24-year-old, don't you think that their life is precious too and their body is valuable? Do you just want to give that away to anybody? Do you just want to share that with whomever without any future with that particular person? We need to communicate these biblical first things, and pastors need to do so from the pulpit, and pro-lifers need to do a better job in general of drawing these things up, making these arguments, making these the case for real um, devotion and commitment to an absolute moral authority and a moral truth. And you know why, 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 don't, why don't we do that? It goes all the way back to point number one. There are so many people in the R party who are godless. They want to satisfy their own sexual desires outside of and apart from God's design plan, and so life really isn't that important to them. What's really most important to them is doing what they feel like doing, okay? So how do we answer this red herring argument? Well, we can try to push for easier adoption access. We really need to push for a return to biblical first things and biblical principles. Um, This probably is only going to happen by the preaching of the gospel as people's hearts are changed. But you'll notice throughout history, even people who are not Christians respect and honor the truths that are found in the scriptures. They respect and they honor them because those truths are just generally good for society. So you don't have to be a Christian to benefit from God's word. You don't have to believe in Jesus to experience the blessing and the peace that comes from following the principles that are found in the scriptures. People are going to follow some kind of morality. Political parties are going to implement some kind of morality. Why don't we demand that they implement a biblical morality? Why don't we demand that? We should. We should be demanding that because that is consistent with our worldview that life should be protected from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. That's what we believe. And so we need to be broader in our understanding. We need to be more crafty and more thoughtful in the arguments that we put forth. And we need to stop putting our faith in a particular political party. We need to demand that our political party that represents us actually represent us. And I think, I don't know, maybe we just aren't that committed to these truths as a pro-life movement. Maybe that's why we lose. I would hope that we could change. I would love to see us do better as a pro-life movement. We need to get back to these first things as well. And we need to develop a robust argument for life based upon the only book that God ever wrote, the only source of objective truth in this world today, that is the scriptures. All right. Well, I know this episode is a little bit longer than normal, but I hope that you've 
been blessed and you've benefited from it. And I pray that you will do all in your power to be a better pro-lifer. To the glory of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 